Section two of Louis Lambert by Honoré de Balzac, translated by Clara Bell and James Waring. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. All that I can now remember of the poetical conversations we held together concerning the Swedish prophet, whose works I have since had the curiosity to read, may be told in a few paragraphs. In each of us there are two distinct beings. According to Swedenborg, the angel is an individual in whom the inner being conquers the external being. If a man desires to earn his call to be an angel, as soon as his mind reveals to him his twofold existence, he must strive to foster the delicate angelic essence that exists within him. If, for lack of a lucid appreciation of his destiny, he allows bodily action to predominate, instead of confirming his intellectual being, all his powers will be absorbed in the use of his external senses, and the angel will slowly perish by the materialization of both natures. In the contrary case, if he nourishes his inner being with the aliment needful to it, the soul triumphs over matter, and strives to get free. When they separate by the act of what we call death, the angel, strong enough then to cast off its wrappings, survives and begins its real life. The infinite variety which differentiates individual men can only be explained by this twofold existence, which again is proved and made intelligible by that variety. In point of fact, the wide distance between a man whose torpid intelligence condemns him to evident stupidity, and one who, by the exercise of his inner life, has acquired the gift of some power, allows us to suppose that there is as great a difference between men of genius and other beings as there is between the blind and those who see. This hypothesis, since it extends creation beyond all limits, gives us, as it were, the clue to heaven. The beings who, here on earth, are apparently mingled with distinction, are there distributed according to their inner perfection, in distinct spheres whose speech and manners have nothing in common. In the invisible world, as in the real world, if some native of the lower spheres comes all unworthy into a higher sphere, not only can he never understand the customs and language there, but his mere presence paralyzes the voice and hearts of those who dwell therein. Dante, in his divine comedy, had perhaps some slight intuition of those spheres which begin in the world of torment, and rise circle on circle to the highest heaven. Thus Swedenborg's doctrine is the product of a lucid spirit noting down the innumerable signs by which the angels manifest their presence among men. This doctrine, which I have endeavoured to sum up in a more or less consistent form, was set before me by Lambert with all the fascination of mysticism, swathed in the wrappings of the phraseology affected by mystical writers, an obscure language full of abstractions, and taking such effect on the brain, that there are books by Jacob Bohm, Swedenborg, and Madame Guion, so strangely powerful they give rise to fantasies as various as the dreams of the opium-eater. Lambert told me of mystical facts so extraordinary, he so acted on my imagination, that he made my brain real. Still I loved to plunge into that realm of mystery, invisible to the senses, in which every one likes to dwell, whether he pictures it to himself under the indefinite ideal of the future, or clothes it in the more solid guise of romance. These violent revulsions of the mind on itself gave me, without my knowing it, a comprehension of its power, and accustomed me to the workings of the mind. Lambert himself explained everything by his theory of the angels. To him, pure love, love as we dream of it in youth, was the coalescence of two angelic natures. Nothing could exceed the fervency with which he longed to meet a woman angel. And who better than he could inspire or feel love? If anything could give an impression of an exquisite nature, was it not the amiability and kindliness that marked his feelings, his words, his actions, his slightest gestures, the conjugal regard that united us as boys, and that we expressed when we called ourselves chums. There was no distinction for us between my ideas and his. We imitated each other's handwriting, so that one might write the tasks of both. 
thus if one of us had a book to finish and to return to the mathematical master he could read on without interruption while the other scribbled off his exercise and imposition we did our tasks as though paying a task on our peace of mind if my memory does not play me false they were sometimes of remarkable merit when lambert did them but on the foregone conclusion that we were both of us idiots the master always went through them under a rooted prejudice and even kept them to read to be laughed at by our schoolfellows i remember one afternoon at the end of the lesson which lasted from two till four the master took possession of a page translated by lambert the passage began with caius gracchus vir nobilis lambert had construed this by caius gracchus had a noble heart where did you find heart in nobilis said the father sharply and there was a roar of laughter while lambert looked at the master in some bewilderment what would madame la baronne de stael say if she could know that you make such nonsense of a word that means noble family of patrician rank she would say that you are an ass said i in a muttered tone master poet you will stay in for a week replied the master who unfortunately overheard me lambert simply repeated looking at me with inexpressible affection vir nobilis madame de stael was in fact partly the cause of lambert's troubles on every pretext masters and pupils threw the name in his teeth either in irony or in reproof louis lost no time in getting himself kept in to share my imprisonment freer thus than in any other circumstances we could talk the whole day long in the silence of the dormitories where each boy had a cubicle six feet square the partitions consisting at the top of open bars the doors fitted with gratings were locked at night and opened in the morning under the eye of the father whose duty it was to superintend our rising and going to bed the creak of these gates which the college servants unlocked with remarkable expedition was a sound peculiar to that college these little cells were our prison and boys were sometimes shut up there for a month at a time the boys in these coops were under the stern eye of the prefect a sort of censor who stole up at certain hours or at unexpected moments with a silent step to hear if we were talking instead of writing our impositions but a few walnut shells dropped on the stairs or the sharpness of our hearing almost always enabled us to beware of his coming so we could give ourselves up without anxiety to our favorite studies however as books were prohibited our prison hours were chiefly filled up with metaphysical discussions or with relating singular facts connected with the phenomena of mind one of the most extraordinary of these incidents beyond question is this which i will here record not only because it concerns lambert but because it perhaps was the turning point of his scientific career by the law of custom in all schools thursday and sunday were holidays but the services which we were made to attend very regularly so completely filled up sunday that we considered thursday our only real day of freedom after once attending mass we had a long day before us to spend in walks in the country round the town of vendome the manor of rochambeau was the most interesting object of our excursions perhaps by reason of its distance the smaller boys were very seldom taken on so fatiguing an expedition however once or twice a year the class-masters would hold out rochambeau as a reward for diligence in eighteen twelve toward the end of the spring we were to go there for the first time our anxiety to see this famous chateau of rochambeau where the owner sometimes treated the boys to milk made us all very good and nothing hindered the outing neither lambert nor i had ever seen the pretty valley of the loire where the house stood so his imagination and mine were much excited by the prospect of this excursion which filled the school with traditional glee we talked of it all the evening planning to spend in fruit or milk such money as we had saved against all the habits of school life after dinner next day we set out at half-past twelve each provided with a square hunch of bread given to us for our afternoon snack and off we went as gay as swallows marching in a body on the famous chateau with an eagerness which would at first allow of no fatigue when we reached the hill whence we looked down on the house standing halfway down the slope on the devious valley through which the river winds and sparkles between meadows and graceful curves a beautiful landscape one of those scenes to which the keen emotions of early youth or of love lend such a charm that it is wise never to see them again in later years 
Louis Lambert said to me, Why, I saw this last night in a dream. He recognized the clump of trees under which we were standing, the grouping of the woods, the color of the water, the turrets of the chateau, the details, the distance, in fact every part of the prospect which we looked on for the first time. We were mere children, I at any rate, who was but thirteen. Louis, at fifteen, might have the precocity of genius, but at that time we were incapable of falsehood in the most trivial matters of our life as friends. Indeed, if Lambert's powerful mind had any presentiment of the importance of such facts, he was far from appreciating their whole bearing, and he was quite astonished by this incident. I asked him if he had not perhaps been brought to Rochambeau in his infancy, and my question struck him, but after thinking it over he answered in the negative. This incident, analogous to what may be known of the phenomena of sleep in several persons, will illustrate the beginnings of Lambert's line of talent. He took it, in fact, as the basis of a whole system, using a fragment, as Cuvier did in another branch of inquiry, as a clue to the reconstruction of a complete system. At this moment we were sitting together on an old oak stump, and after a few minutes' reflection Louis said to me, if the landscape did not come to me, which it is absurd to imagine, I must have come here. If I was here while I was asleep in my cubicle, does not that constitute a complete severance of my body and my inner being? Does it not prove some inscrutable locomotive faculty in the spirit with effects resembling those of locomotion in the body? Well, then, if my spirit and my body can be severed during sleep, why should I not insist on their separating in the same way while I am awake? I see no halfway mean between the two propositions. But if we go further into details, either the facts are due to the action of a faculty which brings out a second being to whom my body is merely a husk, since I was in my cell, and yet I saw the landscape, and this upsets many systems. Or the facts took place either in some nerve centre, of which the name is yet to be discovered, where our feelings dwell and move, or else in the cerebral centre, where ideas are formed. This last hypothesis gives rise to some strange questions. I walked, I saw, I heard. Motion is inconceivable, but in space, sound acts only at certain angles or on surfaces. Color is caused only by light. If in the dark, with my eyes shut, I saw, I and myself, colored objects. If I heard sounds in the most perfect silence, and without the conditions requisite for the production of sound, if without stirring I traversed wide tracts of space, there must be inner faculties independent of the external laws of physics. Material nature must be penetrable by the spirit. How is it that men have hitherto given so little thought to the phenomena of sleep, which seem to prove that man has a double life? May there not be a new science lying behind them? He added, striking his brow with his hand. If not the elements of a science, at any rate the revelation of stupendous powers in man, at least they prove a frequent severance of our two natures, the fact that I have been thinking out for a very long time. At last, then, I have hit on evidence to show the superiority that distinguishes our latent senses from our corporeal senses. Homo duplex. And yet, he went on, after a pause with a doubtful shrug, perhaps we have not two natures, perhaps we are merely gifted with personal and perfectible qualities, of which the development within us produces certain unobserved phenomena of activity, penetration, and vision. In our love of the marvellous, a passion begotten of our pride, we have translated these effects into poetical inventions, because we did not understand them. It is so convenient to deify the incomprehensible. I should, I own, lament over the loss of my illusions. I so much wished to believe in our twofold nature and in Swedenborg's angels, must this new science destroy them? Yes, for the study of our unknown properties involves us in a science that appears to be materialistic, for the spirit uses, divides, and animates the substance, but it does not destroy it. He remained pensive, almost sad. Perhaps he saw the dreams of his youth as swaddling clothes that he must soon shake off. Sight and hearing are, no doubt, the sheaths for a very marvellous instrument, said he, laughing at his own figure of speech. Always when he was talking to me of heaven and hell, he was wont to treat of nature as being master. But now as he pronounced these last words, big with prescience, he seemed to soar more boldly than ever above the landscape, and his forehead seemed ready to burst with the afflatus of genius. 
his powers mental powers we must call them till some new term is found seemed to flash from the organs intended to express them his eyes shot out thoughts his uplifted hand his silent but tremulous lips were eloquent his burning glance was radiant at last his head as though too heavy or exhausted by too eager a flight fell on his breast this boy this giant bent his head took my hand and clasped it in his own which was damp so fevered was he for the search for truth then after a pause he said i shall be famous and you too he added after a pause we will both study the chemistry of the will noble soul i recognized his superiority though he took great care never to make me feel it he shared with me all the treasures of his mind and regarded me as instrumental in his discoveries leaving me the credit of my insignificant contributions he was always as gracious as a woman in love he had all the bashful feeling the delicacy of soul which make life happy and pleasant to endure on the following day he began writing what he called a treatise on the will his subsequent reflections led to many changes in its plan and method but the incident of that day was certainly the germ of the work just as the electric shock always felt by mesmer at the approach of a particular manservant was the starting point of his discoveries in magnetism a science till then interred under the mysteries of isis of delphi of the cave of trophonius and rediscovered by that prodigious genius close on lavater and the precursor of gaul lambert's ideas suddenly illuminated by this flash of light assumed vaster proportions he disentangled certain truths from his many acquisitions and brought them into order then like a founder he cast the model of his work at the end of six months indefatigable labor lambert's writings excited the curiosity of our companions and became the object of cruel practical jokes which led to a fatal issue one day one of the masters who was bent on seeing the manuscripts enlisted the aid of our tyrants and came to seize by force a box that contained the precious papers lambert and i defended it with incredible courage the trunk was locked our aggressors could not open it but they tried to smash it in the struggle a stroke of malignity at which we shrieked with rage some of the boys with a sense of justice or struck perhaps by our heroic defence advised the attacking party to leave us in peace crushing us with insulting contempt but suddenly brought to the spot by the noise of the battle father hagolt roughly intervened inquiring as to the cause of the fight our enemies had interrupted us in writing our impositions and the class-master came to protect his slaves the foe in self-defence betrayed the existence of the manuscript the dreadful Hagot insisted on our giving up the box. If we should resist, he would have it broken open. Lambert gave him the key. The master took out the papers, glanced through them, and said as he confiscated them, "'And it is for such rubbish as this that you neglect your lessons?' Large tears fell from Lambert's eyes, wrung from him as much by a sense of his offended moral superiority as by the gratuitous insult and betrayal that he had suffered." we gave the accusers a glance of stern reproach had they not delivered us over to the common enemy if the common law of school entitled them to thrash us did it not require them to keep silence as to our misdeeds in a moment they were no doubt ashamed of their baseness father hagolt probably sold the treatise on the will to a local grocer unconscious of the scientific treasure of which the germs thus fell into unworthy hands six months later i left the school and i do not know whether lambert ever recommenced his labours our parting threw him into a mood of the darkest melancholy it was in memory of the disaster that befell louis's book that in the tale which comes first in these etudes i adopted the title invented by lambert for a work of fiction and gave the name of a woman who was dear to him to a girl characterized by her self-devotion but this is not all i have borrowed from him his character and occupations were of great value to me in writing that book and the subject arose from some reminiscences of our youthful meditations this present volume is intended as a modest monument a broken column to commemorate the life of the man who bequeathed to me all he had to leave his thoughts in that boyish effort lambert had enshrined the ideas of a man ten years later when i met some learned men who were devoting serious attention to the phenomena that had struck us and that lambert had so marvellously analysed i understood the value of his work then already forgotten as childish 
i at once spent several months in recalling the principal theories discovered by my poor schoolmate having collected my reminiscences i can boldly state that by eighteen twelve he had proved divined and set forth in his treatise several important facts of which as he had declared evidence was certain to come sooner or later his philosophical speculations ought undoubtedly to gain him recognition as one of the great thinkers who have appeared at wide intervals among men to reveal to them the bare skeleton of some science to come of which the roots spread slowly but which in due time bring forth fair fruit in the intellectual sphere thus a humble artisan bernard palissy searching the soil to find minerals for glazing pottery proclaimed in the sixteenth century with the infallible intuition of genius geological facts which it is now the glory of cuvier and buffon to have demonstrated i can i believe give some idea of lambert's treatise by stating the chief propositions on which it was based but in spite of myself i shall strip them of the ideas in which they were clothed and which were indeed their indispensable accompaniment i started on a different path and only made use of those of his resources which answered the purpose of my scheme i know not therefore whether as his disciple i can faithfully expound his views having assimilated them in the first instance so as to color them with my own new ideas require new words or a new and expanded use of old words extended and defined in their meaning thus lambert to set forth the basis of his system had adopted certain common words that answered to his notions the word will he used to connote the medium in which the mind moves or to use a less abstract expression the mass of power by which man can reproduce outside himself the actions constituting his external life volition a word due to locke expressed the act by which a man exerts his will the word mind or thought which he regarded as the quintessential product of the will also represented the medium in which the ideas originate to which thought gives substance the idea a name common to every creation of the brain constituted the act by which man uses his mind thus the will and the mind were the two generating forces the volition and the idea were the two products volition he thought was the idea evolved from the abstract state to a concrete state from its generative fluid to a solid expression so to speak if such words may be taken to formulate notions so difficult of definition according to him the mind and ideas are the motion and the outcome of our inner organization just as the will and volition are of our external activity he gave the will precedence over the mind you must will before you can think he said many beings live in a condition of willing without ever attaining to the condition of thinking in the north life is long in the south it is shorter but in the north we see torpor in the south a constant excitability of the will up to the point where from an excess of cold or of heat the organs are almost nullified the use of the word medium was suggested to him by an observation he had made in his childhood though to be sure he had no suspicion then of its importance but its singularity naturally struck his delicately alert imagination his mother a fragile nervous woman all sensitiveness and affection was one of those beings created to represent womanhood in all the perfection of her attributes but relegated by a mistaken fate to too low a place in the social scale wholly loving and consequently wholly suffering she died young having thrown all her energies into her motherly love lambert a child of six lying but not always sleeping in a cot by his mother's bed saw the electric sparks from her hair when she combed it the man of fifteen made scientific application of this fact which had amused the child a fact beyond dispute of which there is ample evidence in many instances especially of women who by a sad fatality are doomed to let unappreciated feelings evaporate in the air or some superabundant power run to waste in support of his definitions lambert propounded a variety of problems to be solved challenges flung out to science though he proposed to seek the solution for himself he inquired for instance whether the element that constitutes electricity does not enter as a base into the specific fluid whence our ideas and volitions proceed whether the hair which loses its color turns white falls out or disappears in proportion to the decay or crystallization of our thoughts may not be in fact a capillary system either absorbent or diffusive and wholly electrical 
whether the fluid phenomena of the will a matter generated within us and spontaneously reacting under the impress of conditions as yet unobserved were at all more extraordinary than those of the invisible and intangible fluid produced by a voltaic pile and applied to the nervous system of a dead man whether the formation of ideas in their constant diffusion was less incomprehensible than evaporation of the atoms imperceptible indeed but so violent in their effects that are given off from a grain of musk without any loss of weight whether granting that the function of the skin is purely protective absorbent excretive and tactile the circulation of the blood and all its mechanism would not correspond with the transubstantiation of our will as the circulation of the nerve fluid corresponds to that of the mind finally whether the more or less rapid affluence of these two real substances might not be the result of a certain perfection or imperfection of organs whose conditions require investigation in every manifestation having set forth these principles he proposed to class the phenomena of human life in two series of distinct results demanding with the ardent insistency of conviction a special analysis for each in fact having observed in almost every type of created thing two separate motions he assumed nay he asserted their existence in our human nature and designated this vital antithesis action and reaction a desire he said is a fact completely accomplished in our will before it is accomplished externally hence the sum total of our volitions and our ideas constitutes action and the sum total of our external acts he called reaction when i subsequently read the observations made by bichat on the duality of our external senses i was really bewildered by my recollections recognizing the startling coincidence between the views of that celebrated physiologist and those of louis lambert they both died young and they had with equal steps arrived at the same strange truths nature has in every case been pleased to give a twofold purpose to the various apparatus that constitute her creatures and the twofold action of the human organism which is now ascertained beyond dispute proves by a mass of evidence in daily life how true were lambert's deductions as to action and reaction the inner being the being of action the word he used to designate an unknown specialization the mysterious nexus of febrils to which we owe the inadequately investigated powers of thought and will in short the nameless entity which sees acts foresees the end and accomplishes everything before expressing itself in any physical phenomenon must in conformity with its nature be free from the physical conditions by which the external being of reaction the visible man is fettered in its manifestation from this followed a multitude of logical explanation as to those results of our twofold nature which appear the strangest and a rectification of various systems in which truth and falsehood are mingled certain men having had a glimpse of some phenomena of the natural working of the being of action were like swedenborg carried away above this world by their ardent soul thirsting for poetry and filled with the divine spirit thus in their ignorance of the causes and their admiration of the facts they pleased their fancy by regarding that inner man as divine and constructing a mystical universe hence we have angels a lovely illusion which lambert would never abandon cherishing it even when the sword of his logic was cutting off their dazzling wings heaven he would say must after all be the survival of our perfected faculties and hell the void into which our unperfected faculties are cast away but how then in the ages when the understanding had preserved the religious and spiritualist impressions which prevailed from the time of christ till that of descartes between faith and doubt how could men help accounting for the mysteries of our nature otherwise than by divine interposition of whom but god himself could sages demand an account of an invisible creature so actively and so reactively sensitive gifted with faculties so extensive so improvable by use and so powerful under certain occult influences that they could sometimes see it annihilate by some phenomenon of sight or movement space in its two manifestations time and distance of which the former is the space of the intellect the latter is physical space 
Sometimes they found it reconstructing the past, either by the power of retrospective vision, or by the mystery of a palingenesis not unlike the power a man might have of detecting in the form, integument and embryo in a seed, the flowers of the past, and the numberless variations of their color, scent, and shape, and sometimes again it could be seen vaguely foreseeing the future, either by its apprehension of final causes, or by some phenomenon of physical presentiment other men less poetically religious cold and argumentative quacks perhaps but enthusiasts in brain at least if not in heart recognizing some isolated examples of such phenomena admitted their truth while refusing to consider them as radiating from a common centre each of these was then bent on constructing a science out of a simple fact hence arose demonology judicial astrology the black arts in short every form of divination founded on circumstances that were essentially transient because they varied according to men's temperament and to conditions that are still completely unknown but from these errors of the learned and from the ecclesiastical trials under which fell so many martyrs to their own powers startling evidence was derived of the prodigious faculties at the command of the being of action which according to lambert can abstract itself completely from the being of reaction bursting its envelope and piercing walls by its potent vision a phenomenon known to the hindus as missionaries tell us by the name of tokiad or again by another faculty can grasp in the brain in spite of its closest convolutions the ideas which are formed or forming there and the whole of past consciousness if apparitions are not impossible said lambert they must be due to a faculty of discerning the ideas which represent man in his purest essence whose life imperishable perhaps escapes our grossest senses though they may become perceptible to their inner being when it has reached a high degree of ecstasy or a great perfection of vision i know though my remembrance is now vague that lambert by following the results of mind and will step by step after he had established their laws accounted for a multitude of phenomena which till then had been regarded with reason as incomprehensible thus wizards men possessed with second sight and demoniacs of every degree the victims of the middle ages became the subject of explanations so natural that their very simplicity often seemed to me the seal of their truth the marvellous gifts which the church of rome jealous of all mysteries punished with the stake were in louis's opinion the result of certain affinities between the constituent elements of matter and those of mind which proceed from the same source the man holding a hazel rod when he found a spring of water was guided by some antipathy or sympathy of which he was unconscious nothing but the eccentricity of these phenomena could have availed to give some of them historic certainty sympathies have rarely been proved they afford a kind of pleasure which those who are so happy as to possess them rarely speak of unless they are abnormally singular and even then only in the privacy of intimate intercourse where everything is buried but the antipathies that arise from the inversion of affinities have very happily been recorded when developed by famous men thus bale had hysterics when he heard water splashing scaliger turned pale at the sight of watercress erasmus was thrown into a fever by the smell of fish these three antipathies were connected with water the duc de pernon fainted at the sight of a hare tycho brahe at that of a fox henry the third at the presence of a cat the marechal d'albret at the sight of a wild hog these antipathies were produced by animal emanations and often took effect at a great distance the chevalier de guy marie de medici and many other persons have felt faint at seeing a rose even in a painting lord bacon whether he were forewarned or no of an eclipse of the moon always fell into a syncope while it lasted and his vitality suspended while the phenomenon lasted was restored as soon as it was over without his feeling any further inconvenience these effects of antipathy all well authenticated and chosen from among many which history has happened to preserve are enough to give a clue to the sympathies which remain unknown this fragment of lambert's investigations which i remember from among his essays will throw a light on the method on which he worked i need not emphasize the obvious connection between this theory and the collateral sciences projected by gall and lavater 
they were its natural corollary and every more or less scientific brain will discern the ramifications by which it is inevitably connected with the phrenological observations of one and the speculations on physiognomy of the other mesmer's discovery so important though as yet so little appreciated was also embodied in a single section of this treatise though louis did not know the swiss doctor's writings which are few and brief a simple and logical inference from these principles led him to perceive that the will might be accumulated by a contractal effort of the inner man and then by another effort projected or even imparted to material objects thus the whole force of a man must have the property of reacting on other men and of infusing into them an essence foreign to their own if they could not protect themselves against such an aggression the evidence of this theorem of the science of humanity is of course very multifarious but there is nothing to establish it beyond question we have only the notorious disaster of marius and his harangue to the cimbrian commanded to kill him or the august injunction of a mother to the lion of florence in historic proof of instances of such lightning flashes of mind to lambert then will and thought were living forces and he spoke of them in such a way as to impress his belief on the hearer to him these two forces were in a way visible tangible thought was slow or alert heavy or nimble light or dark he ascribed to it all the attributes of an active agent and thought of it as rising resting waking expanding growing old shrinking becoming atrophied or resuscitating he described its life and specified all its actions by the strangest words in our language speaking of its spontaneity its strength and all its qualities with a kind of intuition which enabled him to recognize all the manifestations of its substantial existence often said he in the midst of quiet and silence when our inner faculties are dormant when a sort of darkness reigns within us and we are lost in the contemplation of things outside us an idea suddenly flies forth and rushes with the swiftness of lightning across the infinite space which our inner vision allows us to perceive this radiant idea springing into existence like a will-o'-the-wisp dies out never to return an ephemeral life like that of babies who give their parents such infinite joy and sorrow a sort of stillborn blossom in the fields of the mind sometimes an idea instead of springing forcibly into life and dying unembodied dawns gradually hovers in the unknown limbo of the organs where it has its birth exhausts us by long gestation develops is itself fruitful grows outwardly in all the grace of youth and the promising attributes of a long life it can endure the closest inspection invites it never tires the sight the investigation it undergoes commands the admiration we give to work slowly elaborated sometimes ideas are evolved in a swarm one brings another they come linked together they vie with each other they fly in clouds wild and headlong again they rise up pallid and misty and perish for want of strength or of nutrition the vital force is lacking or again on certain days they rush down into the depths to light up that immense obscurity they terrify us and leave the soul dejected ideas are a complete system within us resembling a natural kingdom a sort of flora of which the iconography will one day be outlined by some man who will perhaps be accounted a madman yes within us and without everything testifies to the livingness of those exquisite creations which i compare with flowers in obedience to some unutterable revelation of their true nature their being produced as the final cause of man is after all not more amazing than the production of perfume and colour in a plant perfumes are ideas perhaps when we consider the line where flesh ends and the nail begins contains the invisible and inexplicable mystery of the constant transformation of a fluid into horn we must confess that nothing is impossible in the marvellous modifications of human tissue and are there not in our inner nature phenomena of weight and motion comparable to those of physical nature suspense to choose an example vividly familiar to everybody is painful only as a result of the law in virtue of which the weight of a body is multiplied by its velocity the weight of the feeling produced by suspense increases by the constant addition of past pain to the pain of the moment and then to what unless it be the electric fluid are we to attribute the magic by which the will enthrones itself so imperiously in the eye to demolish obstacles at the behest of genius 
thunders in the voice or filters in spite of dissimulation through the human frame the current of that sovereign fluid which in obedience to the high pressure of thought or of feeling flows in a torrent or is reduced to a mere thread and collects to flash in lightnings is the occult agent to which are due the evil or the beneficent efforts of art and passion intonation of voice whether harsh or suave terrible lascivious horrifying or seductive by turns thrilling the heart the nerves or the brain at our will the marvels of the touch the instrument of the mental transfusions of a myriad artists whose creative fingers are able after passionate study to reproduce the forms of nature or again the infinite gradations of the eye from dull inertia to the emission of the most terrifying gleams by this system god is bereft of none of his rights mind as a form of matter has brought me a new conviction of his greatness after hearing him discourse thus after receiving into my soul his look like a ray of light it was difficult not to be dazzled by his conviction and carried away by his arguments the mind appeared to me as a purely physical power surrounded by its innumerable progeny it was a new conception of humanity under a new form this brief sketch of the laws which as lambert maintained constitute the formula of our intellect must suffice to give a notion of the prodigious activity of his spirit feeding on itself louis had sought for proofs of his theories in the history of great men whose lives as set forth by their biographers supply very curious particulars as to the operation of their understanding his memory allowed him to recall such facts as might serve to support his statements he had appended them to each chapter in the form of demonstrations so as to give to many of his theories an almost mathematical certainty the works of cardan a man gifted with singular powers of insight supplied him with valuable materials he had not forgotten that apollonius of tyana had in asia announced the death of a tyrant with every detail of his execution at the very hour when it was taking place in rome nor that plotinus when far away from porphyrius was aware of his friend's intention to kill himself and flew to dissuade him nor the incident in the last century proved in the face of the most incredulous mockery ever known an incident most surprising to men who were accustomed to regard doubt as a weapon against the fact alone but simple enough to believers the fact that alfonso maria de liguori bishop of st agatha administered consolations to pope ganganelli who saw him, heard him, and answered him, while the bishop himself, at a great distance from Rome, was in a trance at home, in the chair where he commonly sat on his return from Mass. On recovering consciousness, he saw all his attendants kneeling beside him, believing him to be dead. "'My friends,' said he, "'the Holy Father is just dead.' Two days later, a letter confirmed the news. The hour of the Pope's death coincided with that when the bishop had been restored to his natural state nor had lambert omitted the yet more recent adventure of an english girl who was passionately attached to a sailor and set out from london to seek him she found him without a guide making her way alone in the north american wilderness reaching him just in time to save his life louis had found confirmatory evidence in the mysteries of the ancients in the acts of the martyrs in which glorious instances may be found the triumph of human will in the demonology of the middle ages in criminal trials and medical researches always selecting the real fact the probable phenomenon with admirable sagacity all this rich collection of scientific anecdotes culled from so many books most of them worthy of credit served no doubt to wrap parcels in and this work which was curious to say the least of it as the outcome of a most extraordinary memory was doomed to destruction among the various cases which added to the value of lambert's treatise was an incident that had taken place in his own family of which he had told me before he wrote his essay this fact bearing on the post-existence of the inner man if i may be allowed to coin a new word for a phenomenon hitherto nameless struck me so forcibly that i have never forgotten it his father and mother were being forced into a lawsuit of which the loss would leave them with a stain on their good name the only thing they had in the world hence their anxiety was very great when the question first arose as to whether they should yield to the plaintiff's unjust demands or should defend themselves against him the matter came under discussion one autumn evening before a turf fire in the room used by the tanner and his wife 
Two or three relations were invited to this family council, and among others Louis' maternal great-grandfather, an old laborer, much bent, but with a venerable and dignified countenance, bright eyes, and a bald yellow head, on which grew a few locks of thin white hair. Like the Obi of the Negroes, or the Sagamore of the Indian savages, he was a sort of oracle, consulted on important occasions. His land was tilled by his grandchildren, who fed and served him. He predicted rain and fine weather, and told them when to mow the hay and gather the crops. The barometric exactitude of his forecasts was quite famous, and added to the confidence and respect he inspired. For whole days he would sit immovable in his armchair. His state of rapt meditation often came upon him since his wife's death. He had been attached to her in the truest and most faithful affection. The discussion was held in his presence, but he did not seem to give much heed to it my children said he when he was asked for his opinion this is too serious a matter for me to decide on alone i must go and consult my wife the old man rose took his stick and went out to the great astonishment of the others who thought him daft he presently came back and said i did not have to go so far as the graveyard your mother came to meet me i found her by the brook she tells me that you will find some receipts in the hands of a notary at blois which will enable you to gain your suit the words were spoken in a firm tone the old man's demeanour and countenance showed that such an apparition was habitual with him in fact the disputed receipts were found and the lawsuit was not attempted this event under his father's roof and to his own knowledge when louis was nine years old contributed largely to his belief in swedenborg's miraculous visions for in the course of that philosopher's life he repeatedly gave proof of the power of sight developed in his inner being. As he grew older, and as his intelligence was developed, Lambert was naturally led to seek in the laws of nature for the causes of the miracle which, in his childhood, had captivated his attention. What name can be given to the chance which brought within his ken so many facts and books bearing on such phenomena, and made him the principal subject and actor in such marvellous manifestations of mind? If Lambert had no other title to fame than the fact of his having formulated in his sixteenth year such a psychological dictum as this, the events which bear witness to the action of the human race, and are the outcome of its intellect, have causes by which they are preconceived, as our actions are accomplished in our minds before they are reproduced by the outer man. Presentiments or predictions are the perception of these causes. I think we may deplore in him a genius equal to Pascal, Lavoisier, or Laplace. His chimerical notions about angels perhaps overruled his work too long. But was it not in trying to make gold that the alchemists unconsciously created chemistry? At the same time, Lambert, at a later period, studied comparative anatomy, physics, geometry, and other sciences bearing on his discoveries, and this was undoubtedly with the purpose of collecting facts and submitting them to analysis, the only torch that can guide us through the dark places of the most inscrutable work of nature. He had too much good sense to dwell among the clouds of theories which can all be expressed in a few words in our day is not the simplest demonstration based on facts more highly esteemed than the most specious system though defended by more or less ingenious inductions but as i did not know him at the period of his life when his cogitations were no doubt the most productive of results i can only conjecture that the bent of his work must have been from that of his first efforts of thought it is easy to see where his treatise on the will was faulty Though gifted already with the powers which characterize superior men, he was but a boy. His brain, though endowed with a great faculty for abstractions, was still full of the delightful beliefs that hover around youth. Thus his conception, while at some points it touched the ripest fruits of his genius, still, by many more, clung to the smaller elements of its germs. To certain readers, lovers of poetry, what he chiefly lacked must have been a certain vein of interest but his work bore the stamp of the struggle that was going on in that noble spirit between the two great principles of spiritualism and materialism round which so many a fine genius had beaten its way without ever daring to amalgamate them louis at first purely spiritualist had been irresistibly led to recognize the material conditions of mind 
confounded by the facts of analysis at the moment when his heart still glazed with yearning at the clouds which floated in swedenborg's heaven he had not yet acquired the necessary powers to produce a coherent system compactly cast in a piece as it were hence certain inconsistencies that have left their stamp even on the sketch here given of his first attempts still incomplete as his work may have been was it not the rough copy of a science of which he would have investigated the secrets at a later time have secured the foundations have examined deduced and connected the logical sequence six months after the confiscation of the treatise on the will i left school our parting was unexpected my mother alarmed by a feverish attack which for some months i had been unable to shake off while my inactive life induced symptoms of coma carried me off at four or five hours notice the announcement of my departure reduced lambert to dreadful dejection shall i never see you again said he in his gentle voice as he clasped me in his arms you will live he went on but i shall die if i can i will come back to you only the young can utter such words with the accent of conviction that gives them the impressiveness of prophecy of a pledge leaving a terror of its fulfilment for a long time indeed i vaguely looked for the promised apparition even now there are days of depression of doubt alarm and loneliness when i am forced to repel the intrusion of that sad parting though it was not fated to be the last when i crossed the yard by which we left lambert was at one end of the refectory windows to see me pass by my request my mother obtained leave for him to dine with us at the inn and in the evening i escorted him back to the fatal gate of the college no lover and his mistress ever shed more tears at parting well good-bye i shall be left alone in this desert said he pointing to the playground where two hundred boys were disporting themselves and shouting when i come back half dead with fatigue from my long excursions through the fields of thought on whose heart can i rest i could tell you everything in a look who will understand me now good-bye i could wish i had never met you i should not know all i am losing and what is to become of me said i is not my position a dreadful one i have nothing here to uphold me and i slapped my forehead he shook his head with a gentle gesture gracious and sad and we parted at that time louis lambert was about five feet five inches in height he grew no more his countenance which was full of expression revealed his sweet nature divine patience developed by harsh usage and the constant concentration needed for his meditative life had bereft his eyes of the audacious pride which is so attractive in some faces and which had so shocked our masters peaceful mildness gave charm to his face an exquisite serenity that was never marred by a tinge of irony or satire for his natural kindliness tempered his conscious strength and superiority he had pretty hands very slender and almost always moist his frame was a marvel a model for a sculptor but our iron-gray uniform with gilt buttons and knee-breeches gave us such an ungainly appearance that lambert's fine proportions and firm muscles could only be appreciated in the bath when we swam in our pool in the loire louis was conspicuous by the whiteness of his skin which was unlike the different shades of our schoolfellows' bodies mottled by the cold or blue from the water gracefully formed elegant in his attitudes delicate in hue never shivering after his bath perhaps because he avoided the shade and always ran into the sunshine louis was like one of those cautious blossoms that close their petals to the blast and refuse to open unless to a clear sky he ate little and drank water only either by instinct or by choice he was averse to any exertion that made a demand on his strength his movements were few and simple like those of orientals or of savages with whom gravity seems a condition of nature as a rule he disliked everything that resembled any special care for his person he commonly sat with his head a little inclined to the left and so constantly rested his elbows on the table that the sleeves of his coats were soon in holes to this slight picture of the outer man i must add a sketch of his moral qualities for i believe i can now judge him impartially though naturally religious louis did not accept the minute practices of the roman ritual his ideas were more intimately in sympathy with saint teresa and fenelon and several fathers and certain saints who in our day would be regarded as hersiarchs and atheists he was rigidly calm during the services 
his own prayers went up in gusts and aspirations without any regular formality in all things he gave himself up to nature and would not pray any more than he would think at any fixed hour in chapel he was equally apt to think of god or to meditate on some problem of philosophy to him jesus christ was the most perfect type of his system et verbum caro factum est seemed a sublime statement intended to express the traditional formula of the will the word and the act made visible christ's unconsciousness of his death having so perfected his inner being by divine works that one day the invisible form of it appeared to his disciples and the other mysteries of the gospels the magnetic cures wrought by christ and the gift of tongues all to him confirmed his doctrine i remember once hearing him say on this subject that the greatest work that could be written nowadays was a history of the primitive church and he never rose to such poetic heights as when in the evening as we conversed he would enter on an inquiry into miracles worked by the power of will during the great age of faith he discerned the strongest evidence of his theory in most of the martyrdoms endured during the first century of our era which he spoke of as the great era of the mind do not the phenomena observed in almost every instance of the torments so heroically endured by the early christians for the establishment of the faith amply prove that material force will never prevail against the force of ideas or the will of man he would say from this effect produced by the will of all each man may draw conclusions in favour of his own i need say nothing of his views on poetry or history nor of his judgment on the masterpieces of our language there would be little interest in the record of opinions now almost universally held though at that time from the lips of a boy they might seem remarkable louis was capable of the highest flights to give a notion of his talents in a few words he could have written zadig as wittily as voltaire he could have thought out the dialogue between scylla and eucrates as powerfully as montesquieu his rectitude of character made him desire above all else in a work that it should bear the stamp of utility at the same time his refined taste demanded novelty of thought as well as of form one of his most remarkable literary observations which will serve as a clue to all the others and show the lucidity of his judgment is this which has ever dwelt in my memory the apocalypse is written ecstasy he regarded the bible as a part of the traditional history of the antediluvian nations which had taken for its share the new humanity he thought that the mythology of the greeks was borrowed both from the hebrew scriptures and from the sacred books of india adapted after their own fashion by the beauty-loving hellenes it is impossible said he to doubt the priority of the asiatic scriptures they are earlier than our sacred books the man who is candid enough to admit this historical fact sees the whole world expand before him was it not on the asiatic highland that the few men took refuge who were able to escape the catastrophe that ruined our globe if indeed men had existed before that cataclysm or shock a serious query the answer to which lies at the bottom of the sea the anthropogony of the bible is merely a genealogy of a swarm escaping from the human hive which settled on the mountainous slopes of tibet between the summits of the himalaya and the caucasus the character of the primitive ideas of that horde called by its lawgiver the people of god no doubt to secure its unity and perhaps also to induce it to maintain his laws and his system of government for the books of moses are a religious political and civil code that character bears the authority of terror convulsions of nature are interpreted with stupendous power as a vengeance from on high in fact since this wandering tribe knew none of the ease enjoyed by a community settled in a patriarchal home their sorrows as pilgrims inspired them with none but gloomy poems majestic but blood-stained in the hindus on the contrary the spectacle of the rapid recoveries of the natural world and the prodigious effects of sunshine which they were the first to recognize gave rise to happy images of blissful love to the worship of fire and the endless personifications of reproductive force these fine fancies are lacking in the book of the hebrews a constant need of self-preservation amid all the dangers and lands they traversed to reach the promised land engendered their exclusive race feeling and their hatred of all other nations these three scriptures are the archives of an engulfed world therein lies the secret of the extraordinary splendor of these languages and their myths 
a grand human history lies beneath those names of men and places and those fables which charm us so irresistibly we know not why perhaps it is because we find in them the native air of renewed humanity thus to him this threefold literature included all the thoughts of man not a book could be written in his opinion of which the subject might not there be discerned in its germ this view shows how learnedly he had pursued his early studies of the bible and how far they had led him hovering as it were over the heads of society and knowing it solely from books he could judge it coldly the law said he never puts a check on the enterprises of the rich and great but crushes the poor who on the contrary need protection his kind heart did not therefore allow him to sympathize in political ideas his system led rather to the passive obedience of which jesus set the example during the last hours of my life at vendome louis had ceased to feel the spur to glory he had in a way had an abstract enjoyment of fame and having opened it as the ancient priests of sacrifice sought to read the future in the hearts of men he had found nothing in the entrails of his chimera scorning a sentiment so wholly personal glory said he is but beatified egoism here perhaps before taking leave of this exceptional boyhood i may pronounce judgment on it by a rapid glance a short time before our separation lambert said to me apart from the general laws which i have formulated and this perhaps will be my glory laws which must be those of the human organism the life of man is movement determined in each individual by the pressure of some inscrutable influence by the brain the heart or the sinews all the innumerable modes of human existence result from the proportions in which these three generating forces are more or less intimately combined with the substances they assimilate in the environment they live in he stopped short struck his forehead and exclaimed how strange in every great man whose portrait i have remarked the neck is short perhaps nature requires that in them the heart should be nearer to the brain then he went on from that a sum total of action takes its rise which constitutes social life the man of sinew contributes action or strength the man of brain genius the man of heart faith but he added sadly faith sees only the clouds of the sanctuary the angel alone has light so according to his own definitions lambert was all brain and all heart it seems to me that his intellectual life was divided into three marked phases under the impulsion from his earliest years of a precocious activity due no doubt to some malady or to some special perfection of organism his powers were concentrated on the functions of the inner senses and a superabundant flow of nerve fluid as a man of ideas he craved to satisfy the thirst of his brain to assimilate every idea hence his reading and from his reading the reflections that gave him the power of reducing things to their simplest expression and of absorbing them to study them in their essence thus the advantages of this splendid stage acquired by other men only after long study were achieved by lambert during his bodily childhood a happy childhood colored by the studious joys of a born poet the point which most thinkers reach at last was to him the starting point whence his brain was to set out one day in search of new worlds of knowledge though as yet he knew it not he had made for himself the most exacting life possible and the most insatiably greedy merely to live was he not compelled to be perpetually casting nutriment into the gulf he had opened in himself like some beings who dwell in the grosser world might not he die of inanition for want of feeding abnormal and disappointed cravings was not this a sort of debauchery of the intellect which might lead to spontaneous combustion like that of bodies saturated with alcohol i had seen nothing of this first phase of his brain development it is only now at a later day that i can thus give an account of its prodigious fruit and results lambert was now thirteen i was so fortunate as to witness the first stage of the second period lambert was cast into all the miseries of school life and that perhaps was his salvation it absorbed the superabundance of his thoughts 
after passing from concrete ideas to their purest expression from words to their ideal import and from that import to principles after reducing everything to the abstract to enable him to live he yearned for yet other intellectual creations quelled by the woes of school and the critical development of his physical constitution he became thoughtful dreamed of feeling and caught a glimpse of new sciences positively masses of ideas checked in his career and not yet strong enough to contemplate the higher spheres he contemplated his inmost self i then perceived in him the struggle of the mind reacting on itself and trying to detect the secrets of its own nature like a physician who watches the course of his own disease at this stage of weakness and strength of childish grace and superhuman powers louis lambert is the creature who more than any other gave me a poetical and truthful image of the being we call an angel always excepting one woman whose name whose features whose identity and whose life i would fain hide from all the world so as to be sole master of the secret of her existence and to bury it in the depths of my heart End of section two of Louis Lambert by Honoré de Balzac, translated by Clara Bell and James Waring, read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California, shaggybark.blogspot.com.